Good morning to you. Glad you're here worshiping with us this morning. Uh, we're uh, going to find ourselves in Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. We looked at Job chapter 1, and Daniel read that for us uh, this morning. Last week, when we were looking at Job chapter 1, we answered the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Meaning, nothing they have done should incur the adversity, the trial, or the discipline of the Lord, um, but yet it still happens. And we learned from chapter 1 uh, last week how that is answered. This week, we answer the question, is true saving faith permanent? Is true saving faith permanent? And then next week, we'll finish up the whole book of Job. We'll look at all of the rest of the book of Job in a single sermon and kind of punctuate towards the end and conclusion of the book of Job. Thus, in three weeks, we've covered the whole book of Job. That could be historic in and of itself, right? And then we'll make our way into the gospel of Mark, and that's where we're going. But I want to spend this morning in the 13 verses in Job chapter 2 answering the question, is true saving faith permanent? Can you lose your faith? Um, this text really, it really um, goes at the issue of the prosperity gospel. So there's people out there that teach you should be healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? That you should always be healthy. You should always be uh, growing and maturing in your wealth and your portfolio, and you should be wise. This text would dismantle um, that. Accompanying the, pros uh, accompanying the prosperity theology is an understanding that you can actually lose your faith. That's one of the undercurrents and subtext of that. So when things do go bad, they can explain why it went bad because you're no longer in the faith. It's a convenient way, um, but it's extremely, extremely dangerous to live like that and to think like that. And we're in narrative. We're in wisdom literature, right? Job was the first book ever written in the Bible. The first thing the Holy Spirit ever penned through man was the book of Job. And it goes after these big, bold themes right out of the gate. And so I want us to explore that this morning. Um, is true saving faith permanent? Okay. And what I want to do, um, as we looked at some of the Jonathan Edwards stuff, and it was an overflow of my personal study in July, I want to begin by giving you an introduction to Sarah Edwards and her response to her husband's death as an example of that kind of faith some 3,000 years or almost 4,000 years later. And so I want to, by way of introduction, bring back to you a little bit of Edwardian thinking into the text, and then we'll dive into the passage itself. March 22nd. 1758 began a number of months of adversity for Sarah Edwards. You remember that Jonathan Edwards, the, who had preached the, the greatest sermon America's ever experienced and also was kind of the, the chief and uh, caretaker of the First Great Awakening, had been living among Indians in Stockbridge. The men and leadership of Princeton University pursue him to be president he eventually succumbs he didn't want to go but he eventually succumbs and he goes to become the president of princeton university in january of that same year 1758 so think january and then it begins for sarah and in, in march the the 
the, the season of adversity. Just a sub point, most of your major universities, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, all of them were divinity schools. They trained pastors. That's how they all started. And boy, have they moved away from that if you know anything about those particular schools. So he gets called in January to Princeton University. Um, so Sarah didn't go with him. The weather, it was winter in the Northeast and the weather was tough and she needed to pack up the home in Stockbridge and then she was gonna make her way there once the weather cleared in late spring and join her husband when she would have smooth passage down to Princeton from Stockbridge. Down in Princeton in January, Jonathan Edwards noticed that ribbons were being tied on people's doors on a, on reg, with, with, with regularity, right? And what that was was a symbol that there was smallpox. There was a smallpox infection going through um, Princeton at the time. And they would tie a ribbon um, on the door handle so you'd know that, that, that somebody in the house would possibly have smallpox. And Jonathan, it was very clear to him that it was, it was starting to take over the community because he kept seeing more and more and more ribbons as warnings that the smallpox and, uh, uh, disease was, uh, was prevalent there in Princeton. So Edwards, being the president, felt he should be the example and step up and take the inoculation. Back then, we've already talked about this a little bit, back then in the inoculation, they um, would give you live virus. We don't give you live virus when you take a shot today. Back then, they gave them live virus, just a small portion, and to, to fend off smallpox. And so he thought, as an example, as president in the community, he would do that so that other people would follow and that they could shut down the smallpox infection and the amount of children dying and all the ramifications of the smallpox disease. So he said he'd take a, take a chance. He got with his buddies, his friends, and they said, let's do it, and he did it. So he called Dr. William Shippen and on, uh, in February of that year, and um, he, he asked him to give him the inoculation. Two weeks later, Jonathan Edwards died from that inoculation. So he moves from Stockbridge, moves to Princeton. He's only president for roughly, you know, after the inoculation. So roughly about a month, he was president. He takes the inoculation. Two weeks later, he dies. Now, you don't email in that era in 1758. You wouldn't email and say, hey, it's crazy your husband died or you didn't have Twitter or any social media or Facebook that we keep up with each other with in our modern context. So they would write snail mail. This is the snail mail that Sarah Edwards received on March 22nd regarding her husband from Dr. William Shippen. Remember, you get this mail at your house. Your husband's died months earlier. They've already had the funeral. You have no idea at all that he has died. Can you, do you have a category for that in your modern thing? You're like, oh my, that would be horrible. I didn't even get to attend the funeral. Not, not only the, not attend the funeral, but she never got to care for her, her husband. So Dr. William Shipman writes this. Most dear and very worthy madam, I am heartily sorrow. I, I am heartily sorry for the occasion of my writing to you by this express. But I know you have been informed that I was brought here to inoculate your husband 
and your dear daughter Esther and her children for the smallpox, which was then spreading fast in Princeton, and that after the most deliberate and serious consultation with his nearest and most religious friends, he was accordingly inoculated. And although he had, he had the smallpox favorably, yet having a number of them in the roof of his mouth and throat, he could not possibly swallow a sufficient quantity of water to keep off a secondary fever which has been proven too strong for his feeble frame. And this afternoon between two and three o'clock, it pleased God to let him sleep. And he never, and never did any mortal man more fully and clearly evidence the sincerity of all his professions by one continued universal calm, cheerful resignation and patient submission to the divine will through every stage of his disease than he, not so much as one discontented expression, nor the least appearance of murmuring through the whole. He never did any person and never did any person expire with more perfect freedom from pain, not so much as one distorted hair, but in the most proper sense of the words, he fell asleep. Death had certainly lost his sin, his, its sting as to him. I conclude this letter with my heart prayer, dear madam, that your will may be enabled to look to that great God whose love and goodness you have experienced a thousand times before for direction and for help. I am, dear madam, your most sympathizing and affectionate friend and very humble servant, signed William Shippen. So she receives this letter by snail mail, and that's what she read. She had to be distraught, right? She couldn't be by her, her husband's side. It had been months. The funeral's already happened. Um, I mean, this is her companion for 31 years of her life. He was gone. What devastating news. So she writes her daughter on April 3rd, Esther, who lived in Princeton near her dad, and it reminds me of our text this morning. That's why we're reading it. But let me read what she wrote her daughter regarding this matter. My very dear child, what shall I say? Exclamation mark. A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are given to God and there I am and love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. So this is Sarah writing to her daughter, Esther, who's also in Princeton. Fast forward, that's April 3rd. April 17th, Esther dies of smallpox begins this compounding effect of adversity and she can't understand what's going on on april 17th esther dies leaving three small children there in princeton by themselves the reason i read those accounts and those exchanges those letters is because it's a reminder to us that adversity is every person's story uh, Job will say in Job 40, verse 1, we'll see next week, man was actually born into adversity. 
It's part and parcel for this life. It's not if you will ever experience a trial. It's when and how you respond will depend on where you are in Christ and your theology and all the things that we're going to talk about today. How could she write this to her daughter, my precious child, a holy and good God who took her, her companion for 31 years, her husband, and then he takes her daughter, and then she travels down and gets the three kids, as you know in the story, and then she dies on the way back and, uh, from, from Princeton to Stockbridge, and she dies. I mean, it's just, it's just compounding, 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 and it and oftentimes doesn't make sense. Well, as you heard Daniel read this morning, a lot of things don't make sense, for sure, for Job. I mean, he was at the zenith of his career. His character is intact. His integrity is intact. We see that in verse 3 of chapter 1. We see it later because God says it was intact. And in our passage, his wife is going to say, why do you still hold fast to your integrity? Like everybody's lining up that Job has done nothing wrong to incur this amount of judgment. And remember our context. Job 1 and 2, the intro to the book of Job, is all happening in a single two-day period. Day 1 is chapter 1. Day 2 is chapter 2. So this is, this is bewildering adversity. Uh, it, the repetity of it, the, the, the expedience of it, the quickness of it. Uh, it's bewildering to read the text, even as, as Daniel was reading this morning, and which I will about to read um, this morning. So he awakens the next day. After burying his ten children in Job chapter 1. You remember last week, he buries his ten children. Tornado crushed their house, kills all of ten, his ten children. They're taken from him. He responds in worship, goes to bed. He wakes up the next morning. I'm sure sore. If you dug ten graves yourself, I'm sure you would be sore. So he wakes up sore, puts his feet on the floor, and we're introduced to chapter 2. Let's read it. Chapter 2, verse 1, Job. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord initiates again and says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give up for his own physical life. Now we're going to deal with the physicality. The one thing chapter 1 left with, you can't put your hand on Job himself physically. Now we're going to move to the physical. However, he says, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face, Satan says. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life so you can... Remove his physical help, but you can't take his last breath. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. 
And Job took a pot shard to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Oh, there's so much there. Then his wife said to him, verse 9 is classic circle. This. His wife said to him to speak to the veracity of his character. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. You're thinking that's not a faithful wife. Well, basically, she's he's in, in so much pain and discomfort. She's basically encouraging him to commit suicide. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Elipaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Manthanite, that they made an appointment to gather, to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. And they lifted up their eyes at a distance. It was so bad, folks, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices. They screamed with shrill, would be the good Old Testament word, shrill. They screamed and then wept. Each of them tore his robe. They threw dust over their heads towards the sky, a sign of mourning and grief, as if he was about to die is what that means. Verse 13, then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw his pain was very great. Why seven days, seven nights? Because that was for the Hebrew world. That was the days of mourning for a funeral. He was at the verge of death. It was so bad. He was unrecognizable. And so they were grieving as if he was going to die. They did the seven day mourning season you know, our funerals last usually a day or maybe two, you know, with family coming in, etc. Right. The, the, the viewing and then, of course, the funeral itself. There's was a seven day cycle. You see that all the way into the New Testament with Jesus. Right. Um, there at the funeral. So um, that was just the, the practice that they did. So there it is so bad. They think he's going to actually lose um, his life. So this is crazy. All right. You ready to get busy? Let's jump into this text and answer the question. Is true saving faith? Permanent. As you know, Job is experiencing trauma upon trauma. This is a singular day. Now we're in day two of this experience. There is a cosmic battle between Satan and God. Questions are being raised. You know, uh, Satan's questioning true saving faith that it's permanent. That, that if you take things away from them, God, they will collapse like a house of cards. They'll just they'll just crumble and, and then they, they, they'll they'll be nothing and they'll actually curse you to your face. It's only because you put a hedge of protection around them. It's only because you bless them that people actually serve you and worship you. This is the challenge that's going on. Remember context, folks. Job has no idea. He doesn't know that conversation is happening. He's just living in the moment. So, review of chapter 1. All of his business is gone, right? All of his business is gone. All of his wealth is gone. All of his employees are dead. And finally, we learned last time 
that his 10 children were killed in a tragic storm, incited by the devil himself. Wave upon wave. Just one of those dimensions, of the four I just mentioned, just one of them would probably be enough to unravel most of us, including myself, our faith, to be, to be brutally honest, right? Ten kids in a single day. And what you see as you dawn the new day in chapter two, you see how relentless Satan is to destroy your life. We know a lot about him uh, because of the text of scripture. Uh, most pronounced would be 1 Peter 5, 8, that the devil goes about like a roaring lion, seeking someone he may devour. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your children. He wants to destroy teenagers. He wants to destroy every one of us, every single one of us here this morning. And he's relentless, and his goal is to dislodge us from the love of God and from our understanding of who God is and, and how we handle adversity. And so chapter 2 begins with that single word, again. That is the ominous, it's like a, a dark, ominous cloud off in the distance. You're like, boy, that's a storm coming again. It's like you can barely get out of chapter 1. It's like you're pulling yourself up, trying to read it yourself, going, oh my goodness, I can't even imagine that happening to, to my family or to my life. And he says, again. It's as if Satan doubled down, doubles down on him. It's a sequel. It's the next day. And he's sore from digging ten fresh graves. He's unaware of the cosmic battle that's going on. And so the plot actually thickens. Satan says, true saving faith is not permanent. God says, no, true saving faith. And he even goes on the offense. Have you considered Job? Job is case in point that a man who is in Christ and in God and loves God cannot be dislodged based on physical things and people around him, relationships around him, dissipating or disseminating altogether. So what we learn from chapter 2, there are four priorities, right, to trusting God inside the whirlwind, inside the adversity that give you the confidence and the understanding theologically that if you truly are in Christ, you will persevere to the end. You will be tough as nails. You will respond. Again, when you look at trials, what they do is they reveal your character. There is a portion of it that builds upon character as you go through them. Little ones becoming bigger trials, right, in life, just the progression of trials. But if you take trials and adversity as a whole, they are a revealer. Of what you and where you're at with God, with God and with Christ, right? That that's what they do. They just say, "Hey, here's how you should respond." It reveals who you are. All right. So it states again: there was a day where the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came into them to present himself before the Lord. So we we started in us, then we went to. The throne of glory where God resides. Then we came back down to earth and saw the decimation of Job, his, his wealth, his career, his family. And now we're shot back up as the scene opens. The second day opens. We're shot back up to the heavenlies. And again, you, I hope you don't miss it, but it is extremely strange that Satan would be in the presence of God. He was an angel. He knew of the presence of God. He was a fallen angel, and he accompanies the angelic host. 
I've kind of got this in my mind in the white spaces here. I'm thinking, you know, he's, he's walking in the presence of God, and there's like 10,000 angels just waiting to pounce on him, right? You just know, like, just say the word, and we'll own this cat. You know, he's done, and uh, we're going to take him out. You know, you can just sense that in the, in, the, in, in the reading and understanding. And it's so strange that he has direct access, and he does. He has access to God, and he is, as Revelation states, the accuser of the brethren. He loves to say, hey, have you seen what Tim's been up to? You know, you, you've seen what he's doing. He just, he loves to do that. Why? To to throw it in the face of God. The only reason they love you, the only reason they worship you, the only reason they glorify God is because you give them things and you bless them and you care for them. And so this strange moment, it's another round in heaven that takes place there in verse one. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came in also to present himself to the Lord. We're introduced to the first of those priorities here in uh, the first five verses, and it's this. Hold fast to your integrity, all right, which was a principle in last week's message, but we're bringing it forward. Hold fast to your integrity. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from and what have you been, what have you been up to? He's doing that for your benefit as a reminder. He's not doing it because he, he needs to know or doesn't know. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He knows everything. This is God. He's asking Satan so that you will know what he's doing on a daily basis because he doesn't sleep nor slumber. And he just roams the earth looking for believers to devour and to destroy, you know, and you'll walk right into that, that trap itself. And so he asked that question to give you a reminder, a strong reminder that you are his prized target. That you walk around when you're in Christ and you declare your allegiance to Christ, you walk around with a target on your back. And he would do anything to destroy your precious life. And then God goes on the offense again, verse 3. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is none like him on earth. And you know the story from verse 3 and verse 2 last week that he's a man of integrity. He holds fast his integrity. You saw that after that brutal singular day, how did he respond? He worshiped. He didn't throw in the towel. He didn't quit. He didn't leave the church. He didn't do anything. He worshiped. He said, whatever you gave, you're allowed to take away. Everything's on loan in my life. There's nothing that's permanent, right? Everything's on loan there. And he says, he's a blameless, he's upright man, verifying again for the third time that this man has done nothing wrong. This is something really bad happening to somebody who's really good and has done nothing to, to bring judgment on himself or to bring discipline on himself. And then there's an additive here in end of verse 3. Look at it. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. He has an unimpeachable character. He can't be bought. He had the epic response of worship. He's solid as a rock. He won't budge, right? And Satan is clearly defeated in chapter 1. And so God reminds Satan, you incited me by this debate. Is true saving faith permanent? You incited me to allow you to crush him. 
which is a reminder that anything that comes to our lives comes through the hand of God. Comes through the hand of God. It's, it's God's hard gifts and there's God's good gifts, right? Both are gifts from the Lord. They, they come to us uh, like this. And so God initiates the challenge and you have this diabolical nature and all this stuff going on. It's just, it's just like almost made for movies. You're like, wow, this is, this is intense. And this is one of the reasons I love the, the book of Job. And so then you see the final question here. Look at it. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. So the one thing that God said you couldn't do is you couldn't touch him physically in chapter 1. Satan comes back because he's relentless, round 2, and says skin for skin. What he's saying is you are protecting him physically. If you take away a man's physical strength and you bring him adversity, cancer, whatever it is, they'll crumble. He'll crumble because he'll look out for himself. Man is self-preoccupied by nature and if you could take away his all his other stuff but he's still going to look out for number one he's a selfish being and and therefore he will he'll quit he'll he'll drop the guard and and you've left this one area and not let me touch him so let me touch him physically and let's see how he responds right however put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. You see the exchange? It's God who allows Satan to touch this man's life, to touch Job's life. It wasn't like just Job's not omniscient. I mean, uh, the devil's not omniscient. The devil can't have permission to destroy his life. If something comes your way, it's coming through, right? It's coming through God's awareness to what is going on. He's allowing it to happen. This means he's the singular causation of what happens he allows it to happen and so you see job still day two holding fast to his integrity he embraces his trial like james one right consider it all joy when we go through various trials we're not joyful for the trial we're joyful because we have god through the trial right Job is, he's basically saying Job's in it for the blessings. And he'll collapse and he'll quit. And this is the debate that's before them. Take everything away. Take his health. Take it all and he will collapse. He will curse you to his face. But God says you cannot kill him. Now, footnote. The devil loves to exploit pain. Physical pain. It's one of his modus operandi because he knows we're frail. We're earthy, right? We, we have weaknesses. We, day we're born, we are marching towards death. We know that. And you get actuarially, you know, 70 or 80 years max. You are going to die. That's 100% true. Every single one of us will take our last breath. And the question is, will death have sting? If you're an unbeliever, it has sting. If you're a believer, it doesn't have sting, Right? Yeah, certainly it hurts us and there's emotional there, but we know where somebody is. It, there's, there's joy at the end of it. You know where somebody is, right? So the devil likes to exploit pain. And we see that here in this second priority, and that is this. Hold fast to your, in, 
your sanity. You've got to hold fast to your, your sanity. Look what he says. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. Verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Boils. In a single moment, from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head, he's got these boils. First one appears under his arm or something. He's like, what? Man, what's that? I'm sad. They are red. As you look at the totality of the book of Job, he keeps coming back to this day and mentioning pieces of it. They're putrefying sores. They're oozing painful boils on his body. They cause incessant itching to the point you, you want some kind of relief. Look at verse 8. And he took a pot shard, a piece of uh, ceramic or, 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 or stone, to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. What do you mean sitting among the ashes? So he's, they're itching, they're big, they're sore, they've consumed his whole body to the point he's unrecognizable, remember? His buddies are going to show up here in a moment, and he's not even recognizable. And he says there he's among the ashes. Well, guess where the ashes are? The city dump. He's out in the city dump. Because he's so grotesque and so much in pain, they accuse him of being a leper. And that's where lepers live. You put him outside of the community. Remember, he, he was this wealthy titan. He held a seat in the city. He, he was well known. He was, the, he was the wisest man, as verse 3 says, from the east. I mean, this guy is at the top of his game one day, and boom, he's on rock bottom. I mean, it's over. I mean, it's craziness here. This is unbelievable. To the point he's unrecognizable. If, if you look at, uh, just to give you an example of that, look at 324. For my groanings comes at the sight of my food. He had lost his appetite, right? So there's appetite suppression in this. He's unrecognizable. And clearly, he's gone from greatness to the city dump in location. I can promise you, with 10,000 employees and the mouths he had to feed, he had a sweet tent or whatever it was he lived in. It was awesome. Like he had the best of the best of the best, right? So he goes from the top to the extreme bottom. He's run out of town. He's in the garbage dump. And it's so bad and so grotesque, they can't even recognize him when his closest accountability group shows up to take care of him and to comfort him. He's unrecognizable. So he's living among the dump. You've been to a dump. You understand it. Ours are like clean dumps compared to their dumps. I mean, we have sanitation. We have sewage. We have these things that they didn't have. So the buzzing of flies, stench, rats. A dump, Gehenna, is a dreadful place to live. He lost his family yesterday. Today, he's had to head out to the dump. And just sit there, and just to relieve the pus and the pain, he's cutting himself to get the to get the infection out. That's the picture I want you to have in your mind. You're thinking, man, I'm kind of like with your wife. I mean, maybe it's time to check out of this planet. You know, if you truly are in God, in Christ, you know, it's time to check out, right? And so that's that's craziness. And what I, I remind you is this that. In a trial, in an adversity, 
You've got to hold fast not only to your integrity, which, which anchors you in the faith, but you also got to hold fast to your sanity. How does he not go crazy is my question. I mean, he's still got composure. Just like when he lost his kids, he was able to put a straight razor to his head and shave himself and, 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 and robe himself and clothe himself. Here again, he's out living in the dump. And his wife says, comes to him and says, hey, man, honestly, I love you, but this is so bad. You should take your life. And look how he responds to her. In sobriety and in insanity, he says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. I could probably say it a little harsher. You know, I'm grateful the scripture cleans it up a little bit, but I mean, I'm just probably thinking I've got to, I've got to say something here. I've got to speak into the situation. No, it's like just real awesome. Like you speak as the foolish women, not you are a ding dong and a foolish person. <laughs> you know, like I'd call her, you know, it'd be more first person, you know, but you know, Job again, Sanity, integrity, you see this? I mean, he's just, he's just an amazing guy. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish ones. Speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Folks, underline that in your scriptures. I know it's tucked away in the Old Testament. It's 4,000 years old to you. But I'm telling you, that's good. This is when it, well, I'm telling you, it's coming your way. If it hasn't already come to you, and some of you have already had a dark hour like this, but I'm telling you, it's coming your way. You will eventually be here, and you need to underscore that. You accept good things from God. You also have to accept the heart gifts. This just comes with the territory. Why? Because you're not from here. This is not your home. If you lock everything down, like I deserve this, and I, I have all these expectations, and they're unrealistic expectations, and I do all this, and something happens, you are going to curse God in his faith, and you're going to demonstrate you were never... You never knew God, and you never were in the faith, right? But if you're truly in the faith, this is how people, gospel people, respond to adversity. They don't run from the church. They don't run from community. They don't run from, from the trial. They go through it. You, you have to push through all of this, right? And I think here that one of the tragedies there in, in verse 10 is that Satan's got her to be his mouthpiece. He somehow convinced her to go to him, and now his own wife deserts him. Only thing he's got left, right? All ten kids are dead. He buried him yesterday. His own wife deserts him. She becomes Satan's mouthpiece. She has the gift of discouragement, right? And says, listen, it'd be better you take your own life. There are limits, and you'd be better off in eternity than you are here, right? Death is better than living but Job's view of God trumps all discouragement, all harsh speech, all temptation, because she's now becoming a temptation to him to give up and to quit, right? And he just says, foolish woman, woman. she's tempting Job to sin. But he knows God is sovereign. God is purposeful. God is good, right? Look what he writes later in Job 23. Look at Job 23.10. But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, and oh, this is a trial. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. I'm going to come forth as gold in this whole deal. 
his only earthly companion, the one person who comes out to the dump, who he hopes to find a monicum or a small, small dose of empathy. I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking, is it for better or for worse? Right? Those were the vows they could committed to. For better and for worse, this is the worst case. Um, for better or for worse. And yet she gets him to, or tries to get him to commit suicide, and he refuses that. And Satan's using her as just a pawn to talk some sense into him and to get him to curse God. But I'm telling you, true saving faith abides. The perseverance of the faith is true, right? It is real and you can't disrupt this guy. You can't stop him. He's unstoppable in his worship. He's unstoppable because he's a man of integrity. And now he understands he's a man of sincerity and, and thoughtfulness, right? And sanity. Sanity is what has got his mind. He's still thinking clearly about God. And that gets you through the trial. That's the only thing. Because sometimes life can be bewildering. And you're going to ask yourself the question, why? He's not asking the question, why? He's asking the question, who? Who will help me through this? He's not asking, why am I going through this? We know because we look back. He doesn't know and he's not asking why. He's asking who? He had theology proper, right? That's what he had. Theology proper is the study and the discipline of theology of the study of knowledge of God. He had spent his life communicating with God, praying and understanding the will of God. It was deep. It was abiding, right? He shepherded his home. He was built to suffer, just like you're built to suffer. Remember what C.S. Lewis said? Why shouldn't we suffer? We're the only ones that can handle it. We have the spirit of God residing in us. We know this. We have theology proper. We know God's sovereign. We know that it had to come through his hand. He assumed God was allowing this. He didn't question God. He assumed it. I like what Winston Churchill said on one occasion. If you're going through hell, just keep going. Right? There's perseverance in that. You're going to be tough as nails. And again... This little section here, it just totally undermines the prosperity gospel. If you've tasted of that or you've dabbled in that, please know it gets blown up here in the first two chapters of, of Job chapters 1 and 2. And he continues to get woe upon woe and he continues to worship. Why? Because his faith is real. And remember what I said last time? No church. He has no copy of the scriptures. This is the first book written. He has no community. He has no family. And now as we exit out of verse 10, he doesn't even have his wife standing by his side. It's so bad. It's so bad. Next, we learn we must hold fast to our testimony. Our testimony, right? Take a look at it. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all his adversity... Stop there. News travels fast, right? This is a, this is a big deal. I mean, he's the, he's the most well-known man in all of the East. So uh, news travels fast. And it's a moving account, right? right? So everybody's kind of passing it on. And so his three friends drop everything and come to him. 
they drop everything and get to Job as fast as possible. And the text there state that they come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. That's why they are there, to sympathize and to comfort him. So we have learned that you have to hold fast to your integrity, you have to hold fast to your sanity, and you have to hold fast to your theology in all things. And now we see you have to hold fast your testimony. Their plan, these three fellows, their plan is to minister to him, right? To care for him. They're true friends. And it's a good point to note here that true friends drop everything, travel any distance, and stay however long it takes. As a matter of fact, the rest of the book is going to be an interaction with these three friends. It's going to play itself out, which you'll see next week in a back and forth exchange. But just to, it's not the point of the text. It's just noteworthy by principle that true friends just do anything, right? Which lines up with Proverbs 17, 17, which says true friends are born for adversity. True friends are born for adversity. I, uh, when it comes to just these kind of buddies, I think you ought to all have them in your life, right? Or buddettes if you're a girl. And uh, buddies and buddettes, we'll just call them that. But um, you, you, need to, you need to have these. It is stated and said many times over and over again in a secular context. If you have one or two or three friends, and I'm talking these level of friends, in a lifetime consider yourself fortunate. So a lot of us have acquaintances, right? But true friends, when you come in Christ and you join a church, which is not a luxury, membership is actually a biblical expectation, you join something, right? Then this is where community comes. This is the advantage we have is that community. That every Sunday, even though you may have had a, a tough week, you come and you say, you know what? But there's Troy every week standing behind that mic. And you may not know what his week was like, but you know that he's here. And you're going, no, if he can do it, I can do it. That's what community does. It, it incites you to faithfulness. So it's not just your theology. It's also this community element. And so you clearly see even 4,000 years ago, hey, news travel fast. His buddies dropped everything, and they care for him. They, they come to minister to him. They come to be along his side. That's what true friends do. True friends run into the burning building. They don't run from it. And you know this. When you go through a dark time, you'll find out who your friends are. They're the ones standing beside you. The rest of them, they'll fall off like flies. They'll die like flies. They'll just disappear, right? And, and, and these are the last men standing here because they're built for adversity. If you want to understand biblical friendship, you should read Proverbs because it's chock full. It's like thick with an understanding of what true friends are like. So look at verse 12. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance, they did not recognize him. They're at a distance probably because he's in the dump. So they'd, they'd pass through the pastures. There were no animals. They stopped by the house. And guess what? It was smoldering. Just still a little bit of fire left over. They went by their family's houses. They were making, they were making their way to him. They, they probably, you know, came into town and inquired, where is he? Where is he? And they say he's in the dump. He's among the ashes, right? And so they pass the pastures. The house is smoldering. There's no, there's no animals in the pastures. The servant's house was empty because everybody had been killed. This is their experience. And they walk up, 
And when they lifted up their eyes from a distance, because they wouldn't go into the dump, you wouldn't enter because it's defiling, right? They'd look up from a distance and they did not recognize him. He is so racked with these boils, which I, they're inexplicable. He's so racked with the physical pain that, and he's so swollen that they don't even notice him. They don't even recognize him. They, they don't even know their buddy. They were aghast. And the text says they cry out. They scream. It's so bad. It's like a horror movie, right? They started screaming. They started weeping. They tore their clothes. And they threw ash in the air, which is all the combination of all of that is contrition and brokenness and heartfelt empathy for this man. That's what they're experiencing. And then I love what they do next. Verse 13. They sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one was speaking a word to him. For they saw the pain was very great. There is no way in the Hebrew language, the words that's used in the Hebrew language to describe this kind of pain. It is, it is unmanageable, unmitigated forthright, consuming pain. And you know what? They did what friends ought to do, and it's a great lesson. Don't say anything. They didn't come alongside of him and give him a Jesus juke. They didn't quote Romans 8.28, all things are going to work together for good to those who love God. They just shut up. Sometimes presence trumps words, and you learn that with good bedside manner. Sometimes I've gone to the hospital and I didn't do anything. I just sat with people who are hurting. Why? Because James says, the half-brother Jesus says, weep with those who weep. Sometimes you don't have to, when you're going to a crisis and you're running in to help somebody, you don't have to come up with this speech and don't quote poems and don't do the Gettysburg Address and weird stuff. You know, just sit there and shut up. Right? Just sit down and presence is presence trumps everything and they had the wherewithal and i'm grateful for it to do that now they're going to speak <laughs> next week they're going to say something it's not going to always be good but in the moment of this extreme excruciating pain they didn't even ask the question what have you done because remember this is a two-day event we're day two here and these guys hustle it to get to him right Seven days, you heard that before, it's the funeral. He was near death. They were speechless. That's part of it. And part of it was they knew what to say and not say. You weep with those who weep. You don't ask silly questions. You just love people through it. There'll be a time for questioning. And there'll be a time for processing adversity and the processing of death and the processing of a crisis. And you need to go through those processes. But out of the gate, you just need to be there for people. And so chapter 2 closes. It's like the curtain closes with him in the dump, with him with his three buddies, in epic silence. But it clearly closes the door for Satan. He's not brought up again in the book of Job. Because he learned that if you truly are a believer, if you're truly in Christ, if you truly have saving faith, then you will endure to the end. There will be perseverance to the end. It doesn't mean you do it perfectly. You're not going to do it perfectly. We're imperfect people. But at the end of the day, your faith will carry you through to heaven. And you see people come and go and come and go. It's probably because they never had faith, right? 
Matthew 13, the parable of the soils, right? Only one of the four soils were believers, true Christians in that picture. Only one. And so Job is the archetype. He's the example of a guy who knew nothing about a cosmic debate between God and Satan. Was doing nothing wrong. Why bad things happen to good people. Didn't bring this on. We bring things on. He didn't bring it on. He lost everything. I'm talking catastrophic, wholesale adversity. Career, business, wealth, kids, wife, and now health. Satan says, if you take a man's health, he'll do anything to preserve himself. He's self-preoccupied. God says, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered him? He won't. Nor will you. He didn't flinch. He didn't buckle. He didn't throw in the towel. I hope that the, the, the narrative here will just fortify your faith. It could be this week for you. It could be you're going to feel a little lump in your throat. And all of a sudden something's going to be there. You're going to go, what is that? You're going to go get a test and find out. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's going to happen to all of us sooner or later. Right? He believed God no matter what. He worshiped God no matter what. He remained steadfast no matter what. Paul's great fear. Paul's great fear is that Satan would lead him away from devotion to, to Christ. And I think that's something we guard against. And we guard against it by holding fast to our integrity holding fast to our sanity, holding fast to our theology, and holding fast to our testimony. When those old boys showed up, it gave him, it infused him with grace. He fought more because he knew now he has three buddies to be a, a testimony to. Just like when you go to the hospital and you've got nurses and all the people around you, you've got to be a testimony. Will Satan stop racking you and bugging you? No. No. He will forever, because he doesn't get it, Try to prove that salvation is not permanent. That is his big nemesis. Why? Because he fell, right? He was an angel and he fell. And so he's thinking, ah, oh, they'll fall like I fell. But when you're in Christ and you have the spirit of God and the theology and you're, you're trusting the sovereignty of God and the will of God in your life, it doesn't work that way. But does he repeat the attack? Oh, does he not? Remember Jesus in Matthew 4? Went at him, tempted him. The three great temptations. Remember Peter? Tempted him, Luke 22. Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So it's coming. If it's not here or hasn't already happened, it is coming. And so I just bring this as both a grace to you and, and, and a warning to you that you will know how to hold fast. And that's the right word, hold fast. It's, it's, it's biblical steadfastness in the Christian life. You've got to have steadfastness. And examples like this, like we looked at Jonathan Edwards this summer, it's just an example and now Sarah Edwards today. Here's Job. Codified in the scriptures. To show you that true saving faith is permanent. And if anybody challenges you something different. Take them to the book of Job. And anybody tells you. God wants you to be wealthy and healthy. And, and, and you know. It's absurdity in theology. It's just not the case folks. It's just not the case. And so I appeal with, with all the authority of James, Job chapter 2. To get us there. As strong as Job is, there's a better Job. And that, that one is Jesus. Jesus also endured, as you know, that Friday, the 
ultimate punishment and sacrifice. So Job's awesome on a human level. Jesus is awesome because he's God and he endured suffering. He's someone that did nothing wrong. 33 years, never sinned. Job could never say that. You can never say it. 33 years, never sinned. Knew what sin was, but never participated in sin. 